Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Saturday Burnt Toast and Coffee Show with apologist William Hemsworth on the Four Persons Network. William is passionate about teaching the faith. He is a convert that attended a Baptist seminary. He is a father and a catechist that will encourage you to live the faith, evangelize, and defend it. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. Once again, the phone number to call into the show is 515-602-9655. Ladies and gentlemen, William Hemsworth. William Hemsworth, it's great to be with you here on the Four Persons Network, and welcome to Burnt Toast and Coffee. Wow, what a week it's been. Uh, for those that don't know, um, I'm actually, I teach middle school. I teach 6th, uh, 7th, and 8th graders. So I teach business in middle school, and our first day of school was this past Monday. Hey, man, what a week it was. It was a lot of fun having those kiddos back and just uh, building those relationships with them. It's just, just a lot of fun. A lot of fun. So if you guys can do me a favor, and if you guys would pray for my students, that would just be absolutely amazing. Um, you know, there are a couple students I have in mind that are actually going through a pretty hard time right now, uh, family-wise. Um, so please keep them in prayer. All right. So this show, let's talk a little bit about this show here that we're going to do today. This show I actually tried to do a few weeks ago. All right, and the microphone, for whatever reason, was not working. And I didn't know that. And our founder, John, he tried to reach out a few times on Messenger over the course of the show. But I had the do not disturb on my phone on. <laughs> and so I did this whole show, and no one heard it because the microphone wasn't working. Well, that happens sometimes, my friends. So we're going to try it again today. And we're going to do it again today because I think it's a very important topic. So we're going to talk about the Arian crisis in the 4th century, which led up to the Council of Nicaea. And, of course, the the Council's declarations about the divinity of Christ, you know, who Jesus is, uh, the formulation of the creed, etc. We're also going to talk about apostolic succession over the course of this and how apostolic succession and the authority that was given to the bishops by apostolic succession helped to condemn this very dangerous heresy that was happening. And then we're also going to go into three modern-day examples of Arianism, and they're all ones you may have run into over the course, who knows, maybe even just in the last couple days. And once we get to them, you'll totally understand where I'm getting at. So let's go ahead. Let's dive into this topic because I think this is one of my favorite topics to write about, uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about, just because there is so much that we could still learn from it. So for those that don't know, um, in the intro to the show, it says I attended a Baptist seminary, and it's true. I have a Master of Divinity in Church History from Liberty University. And so for those that study church history, the Arians are the Arians are a uh, familiar foe of orthodoxy. And this is a heresy that came to the forefront in the 4th century. And as I kind of hinted at already, it was declared heretical 
at the Council of Nicaea in 325, and again in Constantinople in 381, which is sometimes known as Nicaea II. Okay, because that's where the last part of our creed comes from when we start talking about the Holy Spirit. All right. So how was the proper view of Christ upheld? Um, was it strictly by St. Athanasius' brilliant exposition of Scripture? Now, don't get me wrong. We're going to talk a lot about St. Athanasius today because he's brilliant. He did a brilliant job in this area, in this time period, defending the truth of the faith. All right? But some of our Protestant friends will say, you know, that uh, St. Athanasius defended the divinity of Christ using scripture. And to a certain extent, they're totally true, um, that they're accurate on that. But Arius was also using scripture. All right, so how do we balance that out? That's what we're going to kind of get into as well. All right, so a little background here, though. Um, by all accounts, Arius was a brilliant orator. He was a very charismatic guy, and he was able to get crowds riled up into a frenzy. All right, and uh, he was a very charismatic individual who was able to coat his words with enough kind of a shadow of orthodoxy to get some to agree with his opinion, even a couple bishops. And so who was he? What was he talking about? Again, that's what we're going to get into. So we're going we're to deep dive into this today. All right. So what is Arianism? All right. So like I said just a minute ago, Arianism is a heresy that became popular in the early church in the 4th century. Now, it's tempting to say that Arianism was a denial of the full divinity of Christ. And don't get me wrong, that's a big part of it. But to get the full story of the Arian controversy, we need to dig a little deeper here. So this deeper exploration is going to help us um, in understanding not only what this heresy was, but the role that apostolic succession played in getting it condemned. And so at the beginning of the controversy, we could trace it back to the earliest patristic fathers, such as uh, St. Justin Martyr, St. Clement, uh, Clement of Alexandria in origin. Now, by saying this, I'm not saying that they were, denying the, they were denying the divinity of Christ or anything like that. They were not. They were not doing that at all. But it has to do with this idea of the logos. Okay, the Greek word, the logos. Um, the Greek philosophers saw God as immutable, and the philosophers were told that Christians believed in an immutable God. So a God that does not change is what that term means. So Logos was the divine reason uttered as the divine word for the sake of forming and governing the world. Now, at least that is the understanding that the Stoics and Platonists had because it's not truly what the Orthodox teaching is. It's part of it, but it's not the whole story. Now, this was dangerous because some Christians begin to say that the Father was impersonal, was impersonal, while the Son, you know, Jesus, the Logos, was capable of human relationships. Now, it was hard for a pagan people to understand the Trinitarian concept, and let's be honest, it's sometimes it's very difficult. For those today to understand this concept as well, because it is a mystery. We can do our best to understand it. We're never going to fully understand it this side of heaven. But as Christians, we have an obligation to understand it as much as possible. Now, um, like I said, they had trouble understanding this concept of the Trinity, specifically that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
had always existed in unity. It was easier to accept that the sun was somehow subordinate. And this is where a priest, this is where Arius enters the picture in the, in the annals of church history, okay? To these pagan converts, Arius made Christ out to be a type of divine hero. And that was an easier concept for them to grasp. Now, Arius was a student of Lucian of Alexandria. And while he was studying under Lucian, he became friends with a man by the name of Eusebius of Nicomedia. Now, this Eusebius, uh, let's not confuse him with the great church historian Eusebius that has the same name. Let's not do that. They're different guys, different dudes, okay? Eusebius of Nicomedia plays an important role in the promulgation of the Arian heresy. Now, Arius was a priest who was ordained in Alexandria in the year 311. Like I said before, very charismatic guy. And he came to openly challenge the doctrine of the Trinity that his bishop, Alexander of Alexandria, was teaching. So his bishop was teaching Orthodox, the Orthodox Catholic faith, the Orthodox teaching about the Trinity. Arius began to challenge it. Right? And many of the locals um, rallied behind Arius because of his persuasiveness as a public speaker. And he used verses such as Proverbs 8.22 to support his claims. Now, for those that don't know, Proverbs 8.22 says, quote, The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. End quote. Now, this basis for Arius' argumentation continues through Proverbs 8.31, and it describes the role of wisdom in creation. Since Christ is the Logos, he is God's personified wisdom or reason on earth. Now, since this passage of scripture says that he was created, now, in Arius' view, this must mean he is not the same substance of God the Father. Okay? If he is not the same substance of God the Father, then he's not fully divine. That's where we run into a problem, my friends. And this is what Arius wrote. Now, Arius' writings are captured. They're lost to us. But what he wrote um, can be found in um, the church historian Eusebius, some of it, and a lot of it in um, the works of St. Athanasius. Okay, this is what Arius wrote, quote, Before he was begotten or created or ordained or established, he did not exist. And he's talking about Jesus. So, in Arius' view... Christ was a created being, and he had the tendencies that created beings tend to have. Okay, so you and I, my friends, we are created beings. Okay? Uh, we, have con we have concupiscence. We have a sinful nature. And uh, over time, maybe we can change, etc. So, if Jesus, in Arius' view... Jesus was a created being, this meant that he was liable to change or even to sin. Now, St. Athanasius sums up the views of Arius quite nicely. In his first discourse against the Arians, he writes, quote, and it's a long quote, so um, please pay attention because it's crucial to what we're talking about today. This is what St. Athanasius writes against the Arians, quote, For what can they say from it, but that God was not always a father, but became so afterwards? The son was not always for he was not before his generation. He is not from the Father, but he, as others, has come into subsistence out of nothing. 
He is not proper to the Father's essence, for he is a creature and work. And Christ is not very God, but he, as others, was made God by participation. The Son has not exact knowledge of the Father, nor does the Word see the Father perfectly, and neither exactly understands nor knows the Father. He is not the very and only Word of the Father, but is in name only called Word and Wisdom, and is called by grace, Son, and power. He is not unalterable as the Father is, but alterable in nature as the creatures. And he comes short of apprehending the perfect knowledge of the Father. Now, the temptation when looking at the Arian controversy is to immediately look at the Council of Nicaea. And don't get me wrong, it's a big part of it. But there's so much more to the church's response here. Now, as any good pastor would be, uh, Arius' bishop, Bishop Alexander, became very concerned by the teachings of Arius. Um, after all, this error has eternal consequences for those who become wooed by this new and, quite frankly, false doctrine. Alexander admits that he initially ignored the false doctrines and hoped that they would just die out on their own. Now, plans changed when Bishop Eusebius of Nicomedia came to the aid of Arius. To this, Alexander of Alexandria writes, and this is Arius' bishop. He writes, quote, But seeing that Eusebius, now of Nicomedia, who thinks that the government of the church rests with him, because retribution has not come upon him from his desertion of Baratus, who he had cast an eye of desire on the church of the Nicomedians, begins to support these apostates, and has taken upon him to write letters everywhere in their behalf if by any means he may draw in certain ignorant persons to this most base and anti-Christian heresy. So way before um, the Council of Nicaea took place, Arius's very own bishop is calling those who believe his teachings heretics, anti-Christian, apostates. The church does not use this language loosely to believe that Christ is not truly God in the same substance of the Father is a heresy of the highest degree. All right. So seeing that his fellow bishop is no longer teaching doctrine, doctrine that is part of scripture or sacred tradition, Alexander uses authority all right, that he received by apostolic succession to try to correct the situation. So Alexander of Alexandria called a local synod that formally condemned the teachings of Arius, and letters were sent to surrounding bishops to inform them of the synod's conclusion. Now, the way that Alexander pleaded his case against Arius was really nothing short of brilliant. Now, like I said just a moment ago, Arius said that Jesus could not be God because God is immutable. Okay? Alexander's argument was kind of polemical in nature, but it was so effective. He said that Arius denied the immutability of the Father by saying that he was not immutable until the Son was created. Now, for those that may not understand what I just said, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way or anything. So the argument was, since God is immutable, he doesn't change, which means he can't become a father if the Son never fully, you know, if the Son was a created being, etc., okay? Um, so since... God the Father did not become God the Father until Jesus was created. He was not always God the Father, 
and there's a whole bunch of issues that we can just keep going on and on and on about in regard to this argumentation. Now, according to Alexander, and this is what he wrote again, quote, now, and this is Alexander speaking here. Now, when Arius and his fellows made these assertions and shamelessly avowed them, we being assembled with the bishops of Egypt and Libya, nearly a hundred in number, anathematized both them and their followers. So even before Nicaea, Arius was anathematized by the local bishops. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. So over 100 bishops exercised their authority that they received by apostolic succession to anathematize Arius and his followers. Now, the teaching that was contrary to the apostles was, like I said a moment ago, it was, risk, it, was, it was a big risk. It was a risk to the salvation of souls. The early fathers had no choice but to exercise their authority. Now, according to the Synod, there was one view of Christ which was handed down directly from the apostles. Okay, that's what they're upholding, that Jesus had always existed, etc. Sadly, this would not be the end of the heresy. Even though the Synod had a near-unanimous ruling, there were some bishops that were kind of split on it, um, especially those in the East. Now, we look back on this event now and say that this was a serious situation, and, and it was, but a schism this early into the Christian era would have been a disaster. All right. Emperor Constantine heard of the controversy from his bishop named Hosius. Now, regarding this, the ancient church uh, historian Socrates Scholasticus writes, quote, To this end, he sent a letter to Alexander and Arius by a trustworthy person named Hosius, who was bishop of Cordova in Spain and whom the emperor greatly loved and held in the highest estimation. Constantine needed Christianity to be unified in an already crumbling Roman Empire. All right. So now let's. Um, there are some out there who say, you know, that at the Council of Nicaea, this is where the canon became established and all that. We can go into those Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code conspiracies. Those who believe those things really have not looked into history for themselves and they're just relying on second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh hand information about theories. They're not reading the documents for themselves. All this stuff is available for free online. If you doubt me, go check it out. All right. So let's continue. To maintain unity, uh, the emperor called all the bishops in the empire for a council. This council is the first ecumenical council of Nicaea. The council commenced in 325 and has set a precedent for all other ecumenical councils. In fact, this council was so important that all other councils, all other ecumenical councils throughout history say that it's like the most important council in history. So it's kind of a big deal. All right. The council was made up of 318 bishops. Now, um, the pope was absent from the council. Now, this wasn't because he wasn't invited. That's because he was uh, too elderly to make the trip. So in his place, he sent two priests to be uh, legates and to act in his place of authority. Now, this is an important point because um, some of our Protestant friends, like James White, for example, will say since the Pope wasn't there, this council wasn't ratified by the Pope, and therefore the Pope does not have the authority that the church says the Pope has. Now, uh, church historian William Carroll writes, quote, the recommendation for a general or ecumenical council had probably already been made to Constantine by Hosius and most probably to Pope Sylvester as well. Hosius presided over its deliberations. He, probably in two priests of Rome, certainly came 
as representatives of the Pope. I think sometimes we lose sight. Remember, this is 325. There was no trains, no cars. All right. Um, so if you're an elderly person that may have some health issues, this uh, journey is very dangerous. Remember, the Pope is in Rome. Nicaea, not in Rome. It's a couple hundred miles away, if not further. Very dangerous, very long trip for an elderly person. So he sent two representatives to act on his behalf. All right, so championing the Orthodox cause at the council was St. Athanasius, one of my heroes. Athanasius was a brilliant theologian who argued from Scripture the case that Christ is eternal. Now, he argued that the terms in Scripture such as, quote, was handed over, end quote, do not imply that the Son was not divine. The council fathers rallied behind St. Athanasius as he was preaching the faith that had been handed on to them. This great saint said many things, but one thing struck at the heart of Arius' argument. Now, regarding the Logos, Athanasius said, quote, It is plain, therefore, to everyone, do not knowing is proper to the flesh, whereas the Logos, insofar as he is the Logos, knows all things, even before their origination. So this is important because only God knows all things before their origination. This was a statement of deity that had been passed on from the beginning of the church. This is what Athanasius was proclaiming. Both sides of the controversy appealed to Scripture. All right. Uh, both the Orthodox side, but the Orthodox side coined a usage of a term that is not in Scripture to describe Christ's deity. Uh, the Greek word known as homoousios. Now, this term means that the Son is of the same substance or consubstantial as the Father. So that's why at Mass every week when we say the Creed, we say the word consubstantial. That's where that word comes from. It's homoousios, way back in a, at the Council of Nicaea with this word. Okay? Um, this teaching was passed on by valid apostolic succession. <clears throat> now, the irony is that while the bishops condemned Arianism, the term was a source of controversy. The terminology and definitions were defined more narrowly um, in 381 at the Council of Constantinople, sometimes called Nicaea II, thanks in part to the Cappadocian fathers like Gregory of Nazianzus, for example. Um, in fact, St. Gregory of Nazianzus writes, quote, because they are from him, though not after him, being unoriginate necessarily implies being eternal, but being eternal does not entail Unoriginate. So why apostolic succession? Over the past I don't know, 20 minutes or so, uh, we've talked about what happened at the council. We talked some of the background. Um, let's clarify some things. So apostolic succession is much more than one taking an office from a predecessor, even though that is part of it. Now, in combating the Gnostics, St. Irenaeus listed apostolic succession as a reason and for the, ch the church being the true church, and boasted in each bishop being able to trace his lineage to the apostles because the Gnostics couldn't do that. In the early days of the church, uh, succession and tradition were like terms, and they were synonymous with the Greek word diadochi, or diadochi, where we get the word teaching. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the early church catechism, the didache. This is where that word comes from as well. Because tradition involves teaching, but it's much more than that. It is forever linked to the person from whom that teaching derives. So 
Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI writes, that tradition is linked to a person, it's a living word, and has its concrete reality in faith, end quote. Succession is proclaiming something that has been entrusted to someone by Christ himself. And so in apostolic succession, the lineage is not mutually exclusive from the teaching. Okay, they go hand in hand. So throughout the Arian controversy and the modern variations, which we're going to get into in a few moments, uh, there was a deviation from what was taught from the beginning. Apostolic succession is holding fast to the apostolic word, just as tradition means the continuing existence of authorized witnesses. And those authorized witnesses are the bishops of the Catholic Church today. Apostolic succession and apostolic tradition assist in defining each other. The succession is the form of the tradition, and the tradition is the content of the succession. Now, what's interesting here is that the canon of Scripture, remember, this is 325. The church didn't have a uh, formal canon like at the Council of Rome and Carthage to like 382. So this is before that even happened. So both sides are arguing from Scripture, right? And Athanasius also relies on the church's tradition. All right. Now, it's very tempting to look at the Arian controversy and think that it's a thing of the past, but that's totally irresponsible from a historical and theological perspective. Uh, the denying of the divinity of Christ is still something that's an issue among those who call themselves Christians. I run into Christians every day that say they don't believe in the Trinity or that Christ was a good teacher, etc. The Latter-day Saints and the Jehovah's Witnesses call themselves Christians, and they deny the divinity of Christ, at least in the Orthodox view. All right, we'll get more into that in a minute. So why, what would Christianity be like today if the bishops in Alexandria and Nicaea, had they not exercised the authority that was given to them by apostolic succession? The infant church would have experienced a huge schism. Uh, the Roman Empire may have possibly collapsed even earlier than it had, and been thrown into utter chaos. It really would have been a disaster. Um, there were men who resisted the temptation, they stayed faithful, and they championed the cause of apostolic teaching, because that's the way that Christ set things up. He established a church with apostolic succession to help guide the flock in the way of the master. Again, to quote Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, Apostolic succession is, by its nature, the living presence of the word in the personal form of the witness. The unbroken continuity of witnesses is derived from the nature of the word as authority and oral statement. So how about these uh, three modern-day examples of alienism that I had discussed at the top of the show? All right, so since we already mentioned them, talk about our friends at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All right. Depending on what part of the world you're in, they are gaining a lot of steam. In the U.S., you know, they're building a lot of temples and everything, but there are studies that show that their membership in the U.S. is actually dwindling. Um, so they teach that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is fully divine, but he's not always eternal. You see, that's the kicker. When you, when you talk to them about the Trinity – and I've done this many times with missionaries, and I think I'm blacklisted because they don't come to my house anymore. 
because I used to invite them in. We had we had a standing appointment every Saturday at one time just to have a discussion about Jesus. It was pretty awesome. Um, when he asked them about the Trinity, they say, "Yeah, we believe in the Trinity, but we believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three different gods." That's not orthodox. That is not what the church has always taught. Um, so, in their view, Jesus was created, and Jesus and Satan are actually brothers. Now, according to LDS doctrine, Christ was the firstborn spirit, son of God. Um, and the founder and the first prophet of the church, Joseph Smith, says, quote, Among the spirit children of Elohim, the firstborn was and is Jehovah, or Jesus Christ, to whom all others are juniors. The doctrine of who Christ is differs widely from the historic view of Christianity that we just went over. But like the Arians of old, scriptures are eisegeted or taken out of their context to make it seem like the doctrine is in scripture. Now, the point of scripture is another contention with our Mormon friends um, because they recognize the King James Bible, the Book of Mormon, uh, Doctrine of Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price um, as scripture. And this varies widely from the scriptures that were listed of the Council of Rome in 382 and or of apostolic origin. Um, the concept of Christ is so vastly different that the Catholic Church sees Mormon baptisms as invalid. And the church actually um, cites apostolic succession, such as previous councils. So this is what the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith has declared about Mormon baptism, unquote. As it is easily seen to the similarity of titles, there does not correspond in any way a doctrinal content which can lead to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. The words Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for the Mormons a meaning totally different from the Christian's meaning. The differences are so great that one cannot even consider that this doctrine is a heresy which emerged out of the false understanding of the Christian doctrine. The teaching of the Mormons has a completely different matrix. We do not find ourselves, therefore, before the case of the validity of baptism administered by heretics affirmed already from the first Christian centuries, nor of baptism conferred in non-Catholic ecclesial communities. So for those that don't know, the Catholic Church says that baptisms in Protestant churches, as long as they're done in the Trinitarian formula, are valid baptisms. But it says that those baptisms done in Mormon churches are not valid because the meaning of the words in the Trinity means so they're totally different than um, what the apostles taught and what was passed down. All right, let's move on. Now, perhaps the most popular example of modern-day Arianism is the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. You may know them by the more popular name. Jehovah's Witness. And so just like the Arians of old, they believe that Jesus was a created being. Now, their official doctrinal position is that Jesus is the Archangel Michael and was the first created being. And I got that from their website. Um, they have their doctrinal manual available on their website. So if you want to check it out, go ahead. Um, their doctrinal manual on page five says Jesus is the sole direct creation of God. So in their view, God created Christ and Christ created everything else. Uh, they are very mission-oriented, and, you know, they're going to knock on your doors and all that. But since COVID, they actually started sending letters in the mail. Um, again, they haven't been to my house in a long time. Maybe I'm blacklisted from them, too. I don't know. Kind of hurts my evangelism efforts, though, but whatever. We'll get around it. Now, 
their missional views are uh, very admirable. And to be honest, my friends, I think I, I wish I wish the Catholic Church would kind of take up their evangelism efforts, especially around our parishes. You know, what would happen if our if we had a group from our parishes just go around to the neighborhood asking if we could pray for people in front of the Blessed Sacrament? Say, hey, uh, my my name is William Hemsworth from the Catholic Church down the street. Um, we're just going around the neighborhood asking if you needed prayer. We're going to be going and praying in front of the Blessed Sacrament and want to know if we could pray for you. One, I don't know anyone, even an atheist, who's going to turn down free prayer. Who's going to turn down prayer, right? But think about it. Maybe they'll ask, what is the Blessed Sacrament? You can get into the Eucharist and all that stuff. I mean, it's really a great opportunity that I really think we should take up. But I digress. All right. Even though all that's admirable, what they do, uh, their views of Christ has been, had, they've been condemned through the ages. And the canons of Nicaea still apply to their view. All right. Now, this third one, maybe I'll catch some flack for, but most likely not. But we're going to do it anyway. The third movement that often falls into Arianism is modernism. Yes, my friends, I said modernism. Now, that's going to be shocking to some. But when we carry modernism to its logical conclusion, it denies the divinity of Christ. So modernism started in the 19th century by elevating human reason as the judge of all. Now, nothing wrong with human reason. Human reason is a gift from God. It's a great gift that God has given us. But modernist theologians started denying the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth, the resurrection, uh, and the divinity of Christ. Now, John Shelby um, in the 19th century. John Shelby was a modernist Episcopal bishop, and he wrote, quote, the virgin birth tradition of the New Testament is not literally true. It should not be literally believed. Wow. And unfortunately, there are still many today who follow his view. He goes on to say, Shelby goes on to rise from the dead, and that his divinity is also questionable. All right. So let's stop there for a moment. St. Paul addressed this already. If the resurrection didn't happen, we are still dead in trespasses and sins. Now, Peter Kreft had a great quote in the 1980s. He said, Christianity is the easiest religion in the world to disprove. Just show me the bones. Mic drop. All right. Now, Though modernism is technically defined as a different way of doing things, it's clear that things can get out of hand without a sound authority to guide it. The church in the late 19th and early 20th centuries spent a great deal of time combating modernism. And in 1910, St. Pope Pius X wrote an encyclical titled The Oath Against the Errors of Modernism. In that encyclical, in that encyclical he writes, quote, Firm faith, I believe that the church, guardian and mistress of the revealed word, was instituted proximately and directly by the true and historical Christ himself, while he sojourned among us, and that the same was built upon Peter, the chief of the apostolic hierarchy, and his successors until the end of the age. All right, my friends. There you have it. We took a little trip down into history talking about what Arianism is, why it's important. We talked about some modern terms, some modern variations, um, and I hope this show has been helpful for you. 
Um, so as always, please pray for me as I pray for you each and every day. And uh, thank you for this opportunity each and every week to come on the Four Persons Network and to talk about our faith. It's truly an honor, truly a blessing. Um, God bless you all. God bless. Take care.